There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 3, Episode 13, A Beloved Rebel... Niels Gustav von Schulz and the Upper Canadian Rebellion of 1837 and 1838. Patriot, rebel, insurgent, freedom fighter, naive romantic, all of these things could be used to describe Finnish-born Niels Gustav von Schulz, the man who found himself leading the attack on Upper Canada in November 1838, culminating in what came to be known as the Battle of the Windmill, and the end of the rebellion. This week's book recommendation is The Firebrand, William Lyon Mackenzie and the Rebellion in Upper Canada. This is an accounting of the Upper Canadian Rebellion in the words of one of its most famous leaders, that of, of course, William Lyon Mackenzie, the first mayor of Toronto. It has been reissued numerous times, most recently by Dundurn Press in 2008, both as a digital download and a paperback, it's well worth the read. Okay, so Niels Gustav Ulrich von Schultz was born in Finland in October 1807. His father was part of the emerging middle-class bureaucracy that was growing in size and political awareness during the early 19th century. A year after he was born, the Russians invaded and overran Finland, incorporating it into the Russian Empire. In response, Schultz's family picked up and migrated to Sweden, but eventually returned to Finland after his father's death in 1816. Schultz was educated in Finland, but soon returned back to Sweden, where he joined the Karlberg Military Academy. By 1825, he had graduated and become an officer in an artillery regiment though his time with the Swedish military would be cut short in 1830 when he was forced to resign his commission. The evidence is scant, but according to a 1971 biography, he accrued significant gambling debts and could not afford to maintain his position as an officer. Regardless, his departure from the military began a period where Schultz found himself a wandering mercenary, he fought for Poland against the Russians, uh, eventually ending up as a prisoner of war. Incredibly, he escaped from the Russians and eventually found his way to France, where he joined the Foreign Legion and served in North Africa. 
Eventually, he left the Foreign Legion and made his way to Italy, where he met a young woman named Anne Campbell, a Scottish woman visiting Florence from Scotland, obviously, and the two were married and moved back to Sweden in 1834. Within a couple of years, the pair had two young daughters. With living costs rising, Schultz was also taking care of Anne's mother, sister, and a house full of servants. Schultz sought new ways to generate an income. One way in particular was through experimenting with manufacturing techniques. He built and operated a laboratory that sought to develop new methods of manufacturing which he could patent and sell. However, Schultz was continually burdened by debt and was unable to invent or develop anything that brought him out of it. After a particularly discouraging trip to England, where a red dye he had invented proved a failure, Schultz picked up and left to the United States. He told neither his wife nor his wife's relatives, who he had been staying with in England, that he was leaving. Schultz abandoned his family and was North American bound. He arrived in New York in 1836 and quickly became friends with numerous individuals in the business community. His European charm and manners endeared him to almost every American he met. He even finally found some entrepreneurial success, developing a method for extracting salt from brine. By 1837, he had bought property in Virginia, settled in modern-day Syracuse, New York, and even applied for and was granted American citizenship. But by this time, you must be asking yourself, what about his family? Well, he eventually wrote to his wife, informing her that he had found some success in America and would be sending her some money very soon. Meanwhile, it appears he was courting a young woman who lived in his new hometown of Syracuse. A reminder, you can find Cool Canadian History on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, SoundCloud, at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com, and we're even on Instagram. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive solely on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And for those who have donated, we thank you. Now on with the show. So, Schultz has found some moderate success in America. He's settled in Syracuse. He has property in Virginia. He seems to be well-respected and well-liked by most of his peers. And it is at this time that we need to bring you, the listener, up to speed on the events occurring in British North America, specifically in Upper and Lower Canada. That's the modern-day southern parts of Ontario and Quebec, respectively. You see, for nearly two decades, both colonies had experienced a growing resentment amongst mostly its non-voting population, which was pretty much the vast majority of people in both colonies, against the reigning political system that continually excluded them from decisions affecting their lives within the colony. In both Upper and Lower Canada, a group of wealthy elites pretty much controlled all aspects of government, supported, of course, by the British Crown and resisted aggressively any attempts at reform, specifically any reform that expanded the franchise or empowered the respective legislative assemblies of each colony. In Upper Canada, this oligarchical group was known as the Family Compact, 
At the same time, living in Upper Canada were thousands of Americans. Many were descendants of British loyalists who had fled the United States after it had defeated Britain in 1783 during the American Revolution. However, thousands more were newly arrived, American citizens seeking access to the plush land that Upper Canada offered for cheap. Thus, by 1836, the grumblings of many Upper Canadians were directed at the family compact, the British crown, and throughout the colony, people began to advocate for substantial political change, if not outright abandonment of the British crown and a conversion to a republic along the American model. In 1837, these tensions over political representation spilled into outright rebellion. In both Upper Canada and Lower Canada, groups of mostly farmers and some of the emerging urban middle class armed themselves and clashed with British troops and loyalist militia. When the rebels in both colonies were defeated in more larger formal battles at the end of 1837, many fled across the border to the United States to go into hiding. The Upper Canadian rebels organized themselves into what was called Hunter's Lodges, essentially a secret society composed of insurgent cells that would direct attacks against Upper Canadian military installations, continuing the fight for what they saw as liberation from British tyranny. It was one of these cells that Schultz would join. You see, perhaps at his core, von Schultz was a romantic for the causes of freedom and liberation. He had seen his own country fall under the thumb of the Russian Empire, had fought for the Poles in their struggle of liberation against those Russians, and even quit the French Foreign Legion when he found their cause not to be one suited to his liking. Thus, it is perhaps no surprise that the call for rebellion in Upper Canada appealed to Schultz, and in early 1838, von Schultz agreed to join one of the Hunter's Lodges and participate in an attack on the town of Prescott in Upper Canada. Prescott lies on the North Shore, so the Canadian side, of the St. Lawrence River in modern-day southern Ontario. On its opposite side is the American town of Ogdensburg. Today, the two towns are connected by a bridge, but back then, one could only cross via a boat. To understand the attack on Prescott, we need to understand the strategic philosophy of the rebels. Simply put, many of the rebel insurgents realized that hit-and-run attacks were not going to be enough to liberate Upper Canada from British rule. A significant military victory was needed to rally the people of Upper Canada to the cause. The attack on Prescott was going to be this catalyst. On 11 November 1838, Schultz boarded one of the two schooners that would transport the rebel force into Canadian territory, the two schooners being towed by a larger steamship. Unbeknownst to the rebels, however, the British had infiltrated the hunters' lodges and were well aware of the impending attack. As the tiny flotilla began its water crossing, a British ship emerged from hiding and began to fire on the rebel fleet. The attack caused one of the schooners to detach from the steamship. The steamship itself was damaged. In the end, the only boat to make it to the Canadian side was the schooner with Schultz on it. As the highest-ranking officer on board, the only working schooner, this Finnish mercenary turned American businessman turned rebel was now in charge of the invading rebel army. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, by this time, the Prescott militia had come out in full force and was fully prepared to meet the invasion. Schultz thus chose a spot two miles east of the town, known as Windmill Point. This was essentially a high point on the riverbank, with a windmill surrounded by a large stone wall. Schultz figured that this was a very defensible spot, and while his force held on to this beachhead, his superior officers could gather more reinforcements and supplies to bring over to the Canadian side of the river. Thus, Schultz and his band of men took their positions inside the great stone wall of Windmill Point. On the morning of 13 November, a British force of 1,500 men, including British regulars and militia, attacked the rebel defenders. The thick stone wall around the windmill proved remarkably efficient in deflecting small arms and even artillery fire. Nonetheless, wave after wave of British regulars and a number of Canadian militia continually attacked the rebel positions. The dead and wounded began piling up. And this situation continued like this for several days. By the 16th of November, Schultz was becoming desperate. The supposed reinforcements had never shown up. More importantly, water and food was running desperately short. You see, unbeknownst to Schultz, the British Navy had blockaded the rebel ships that were loading up in Ogdensburg, essentially cutting off Schultz's force from his supply lines. What's fascinating is that helping the Royal Navy was also the U.S. Navy. The two services worked together to prevent any more rebels from crossing over to the Canadian side. The Americans even arrested a few of the prominent rebel leaders in Ogdensburg. On top of all of that, the British were finally able to bring in some heavy artillery all the way from Kingston. The day of 16 November was thus a turning point. The heavy artillery, as well as British naval artillery, destroyed the rebel position. As casualties mounted, Schultz realized his position was untenable, and late that evening, Schultz formally surrendered. Now, Schultz's trial began on 26 November and was held at Fort Henry on the Niagara Peninsula. In typical Schultz fashion, he charmed the British officers who were in charge of his detention. It was one of these British officers who recommended that Schultz get a lawyer, specifically a bright up-and-coming Scotsman named John A. Macdonald, future First Prime Minister of Canada. Now, Macdonald made a fairly strong argument for Schultz. He basically said that Schultz was ignorant of what was really going on. He had been duped into believing the Upper Canadian people were subject to ruthless tyranny and felt honour-bound to defend them, and thus he should not be found guilty because of it. Incredibly, it was Schultz's own honor that sank his case. He insisted that while ignorant, he was still guilty of attacking the colony and should pay for his crime. This was enough for the court, and he was found guilty and executed by hanging on 8th December. Even in death, Schultz remained the archetype 
of a gallant European officer. His will actually donated funds to the widows of four British soldiers killed during the Battle of the Windmill, as well as donated funds to a new school being built in Kingston, the Roman Catholic College, which now stands as Canada's oldest Catholic high school. His final words asked the American people to not attempt to avenge his death and that he had realized the Canadians were not overwhelmingly discontented. He was only 31 years old when he was executed. A freedom fighter, a mercenary, an entrepreneur, and in many ways a naive romantic. Schultz's fascinating life weaved its way throughout European events and ended in Upper Canada at the beginning of a period of great change for the colony and for British North America as a whole. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.